I always ask them, what happens if this fails? If this business completely fails, what happens to you? And if the bad outcome is not serious enough, I can tell you they're going to fail. Right? The bad outcome has to be so potentially painful that failure is not an option. Welcome to the latest installment of Clearview's Founder Vision Podcast. This is Brian Gupton, and I will be your host today. I'd like to welcome our guest for today, Mr. Jay Rollins. Uh, Jay is the founder and CEO of Ethics360, a compliance-as-a-service technology platform. Uh, welcome, Jay. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, thanks for, for, for joining us. Um, before we talk a bit about what Ethics360 does... Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your path to founding the company? You know, what, what's your background and what led you to, to, to start Ethics 360? Oh, great question. Uh, so I was, I'm fortunate that I've been part of several high growth companies in my career where I've typically led sales and marketing or sales or marketing has been sort of the, the gist of my career to this point. But I've been part of a couple teams where there were IPOs involved, numerous seed round funding, A, B, and C round fundings, a little bit of M&A work. So I reached a point in the career where we were looking for uh, an opportunity, looking for the right company in a specific space where we could be highly disruptive, where we could come in and, and have a big impact, which is what investors are looking for companies that can come in and be a disruptive force uh, into an industry. And uh, that's where we settled on this particular industry and this particular company and this particular market. Interesting. So what was the, the unique insight you had that made you say compliance as a service? That's that's something that, that needs to exist. <laughs> uh, pretty simple. Compliance had gotten way too hard, right? <laughs> and it just shouldn't be as hard as it is. Um, there's the, prem the, the premise is most companies want to follow the rules. Most companies don't want to go to court. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want to get fines. They want to build a good business with quality um, ethics behind the company and go forward. And that had gotten very, very difficult uh, due to a number of reasons, primarily fast changing regulations. So you're dealing with a lot of regulatory issues in healthcare, things like HIPAA, Medicare fraud, waste and abuse. And of course, all the things that we saw in finance and the things that uh, Sarbanes-Oxley brought forth on publicly traded companies. And this is accelerating the amount of regulatory issues that company has, companies have to deal with. And so with that complexity, companies were having to implement more and more complex, expensive solutions. And we saw an opportunity to come in with an affordable, efficient, and effective solution that deployed as a service that let people take these concerns about being uh, out of bounds on compliance issues, if you will, and uh, be confident so they can focus on their business and not focus on uh, meeting compliance standards for their various industry. Well, curious, like, so for the, the audience out there who might be scratching their head and saying, uh, what the heck is compliance and, you know, who does that affect? Um, who, who, who do you guys primarily serve? So uh, I'll give you a, a couple of real world examples. For uh, 88 some odd percent of our clients 
have a regulatory requirement to have a product of this type. For example, all publicly traded companies in America, it's an SEC requirement, have to have a third party anonymous whistleblower system so that employees can report instances of financial fraud or financial malfeasance. This is part of Sarbox or Sarbanes-Oxley. So that when you, so that the uh, SEC can be highly confident in the revenues the companies report. Likewise, you've seen issues arise in healthcare around HIPAA compliance and privacy around your medical records. Uh, there are requirements that companies have so that when somebody violates that privacy, you, a company has to have a third party intermediary to be able to uh, make sure that these issues don't get swept under the rug. So we tend to be that third party, a voice for the voiceless poor employee that got uh, lost out on a discrimination issue or on a sexual harassment issue or uh, that low-level finance person that witnessed a CFO doing financial malfeasance or intentionally misreporting financials to Wall Street to overinflate their stock. We tend to be that buffer between that person to be able to take that information and facilitate an investigation uh, into the allegation to determine whether it's credible and if so, what should be done about it uh, to protect the companies from the types of uh, violations that they could occur, could incur. Interesting. So I know I know you mentioned before that you're, you're, you're you've been a serial entrepreneur. This is not your first rodeo. Uh, I'm curious, like, uh, how did you get from idea uh, to the uh, initial launch from from um, you know, for for Ethics 360 specifically? And uh, what were some of the challenges along the way that are you know maybe things that you know someone looking to start their first uh, company. Uh, might not be aware of, but just practical things that have to be overcome to get from idea to initial launch? Sure. Uh, the, the biggest one is understanding where your financing is going to come from prior to being able to sustain your business on revenue and organic growth. There is a period of time with any startup where you have to invest in front of revenue. And when you invest in front of revenue, you have to define a degree of revenue certainty so that investors will write you a check to allow you to hire those people, build that product, develop a go-to-market strategy um, prior to having the revenue to afford it. Uh, then the challenge is on you as the entrepreneur uh, to be able to achieve those revenue goals so that you can get self-sustaining um, so you don't have to continue to take on uh, continuing, uh, continuously dilutive rounds of, of investment just to meet your survival. So for me, as an entrepreneur, that means selecting an industry and a space where there's an opportunity to come in and make a difference quickly. Uh, because when you are a first mover in a market, you tend to uh, attract early adopter clients. Early adopter clients are willing to take a higher risk on a startup and invest in those products. The first company that I founded we were building clone PCs back in the early 1980s uh, when the PC market first started. There was, you know, there was IBM and there was not. Um, right. And we were one of the companies that started importing parts from Taiwan and building personal computers at a fraction of the cost of IBM PCs and being able to meet that need in the market. Uh, 
you're, you're giving me flashbacks to when I was a kid and they used to sell those magazines that would basically be three inches thick of every different type of computer component there was. Exactly. And we, we were one of the companies that was dealing with the same people, only buying, you know, pallets of that stuff and uh, assembling PCs. Right. Well, so now are, 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 are you technical? Are you a, like a programmer by, by background or you were more of a subject matter expert? Um, I, so I would say if you look at my career on a whole, my career has largely been built on being very successful in sales and marketing roles. Um, and and I, I use those two terms together intentionally. Um, yes, I've led some uh, high-performing sales teams in organizations ranging from a handful of sales reps up to uh, the pleasure of having had a billion-dollar quota and 600 sales reps reporting to me. On the flip side of the coin is the marketing side of the equation. And to me, the marketing is about riding a thoroughbred. Sales is about leading a mule, right? And those are two different things. So with on the marketing side of things, it becomes understanding the addressable market. Where are the gaps in the market? Where is this? Where's your strategy to be able to produce a product that fills the gaps in a way uh, that makes your product compelling to businesses? And once they have your product, why are they likely to keep it to maintain that uh, subscription and those annual recurring revenues? So I think that uh, although I, I am technical in nature enough to be able to manage uh, the development organization. I'm not a programmer or a technologist, I wouldn't say. Right. Uh, but I, I think it's about understanding what the market needs and requirements are and translating that into a blueprint that developers can then build. Right. So I think there's a, a lot of founders that kind of come from a, a similar, you know, non-engineering um, background. And, you know, I think there's a, you know, a lot of, of those would-be uh, founders kind of get stuck with, hey, I've got this great idea. I really know my industry, but how do I get something built, you know, without a lot of money, um, you know, to throw at it? Any advice for um, founders in that similar situation, how they get their idea, you know, built so they can get um, the attention of potential investors? Sure. And I've, I've had the fortune of serving on the board as well as advising a number of startups that were in that exact same situation. Um, oftentimes, uh, founders will, will have an idea that is the greatest idea uh, that uh, they've ever seen, um, that when you get outside of their head, unfortunately, it's not such a great idea. Right. So, you know, the, the one piece of guidance I would say is validate, validate, validate. So when you believe you have an idea uh, that can change a market or change an industry, before you invest in building a product, before you, before you spend that money, validate the concept. Validate that there is a viable market for it. How many people are there that will buy it? What will they pay for it? What is the competitive alternative if they don't buy your product? How are they going to meet that need um, outside of your product? How are they meeting that need today? What are their frustrations with the way they meet that need today? Don't just... I just don't have an ideation around a potential product and then go take a second mortgage in your life savings and pay some company to build a prototype for you and then go try to fundraise off a prototype. That's a recipe to a train wreck. I can tell you having raised money a number of times, investors want to understand what the actual viability, what the market size is, 
more than they want to see how much your $300,000 life savings built a prototype with an offshore development team in Romania, how cool it looks. Um, that's not how you raise money. So the, the issue is really getting your arms strategically around what is it you're going to build and validating that your idea really is something the market needs and will pay for. So, so just to push back and play devil's advocate a little bit there. Um, so one of one of the things I, I, I think, um, yeah, I think that that is definitely there's wisdom there, but, but a lot of times investors don't know. Right. And like, I, I feel like there's so many business ideas that have uh, been poo pooed in the beginning, you know, when you just hear the idea um, and they don't really, you know, they, they're not really uh, able to, to be understood until they are built. And then, you know, especially if you're approaching something that's never been done before, um, you know, a lot of times when you talk to investors or other people in the, the you know, in that space, you know, they may give you a hundred reasons why that's not going to work. And often uh, a lot of great ideas actually, I, I think, get abandoned at that stage, um, you know, because of that. And then, uh, you know, somebody comes along who ignores that uh, and builds it anyway. And then the company takes off and is as, as wildly successful. So how do you balance, you know, the, the, the conviction that, you know, you as someone who's spent a lot of time thinking about that particular problem in that particular space and, and, and feels, you know, confident that you're on to something. And how do you balance that thought with, uh, you know, the people who are naysayers and, and, you know, maybe don't spend as much time thinking about that particular idea or that particular space and can only see the reasons why that's destined to fail. Yeah. And and that's why I use the word validate, right. And not, yeah, because I 100% agree with the premise of your question. And that's the same thing investors do. For me, as an investor, those are the questions I ask at the table of the entrepreneur. Besides your you know, rose-colored glasses, who else thinks this is a good idea and why? Where's the actual market research behind this that validates that your idea really is a good idea? You're not looking to invest in an evangelist. You're looking to invest in someone who has captured and proven the viability of an idea so that you can invest behind it. And then obviously one of the first use of funds that you have is to build your prototype. So some people are fortunate enough to have have the um, availability of cash to be able to do that, to be able to hire the developers, to be able to uh, put together the prototype. And that's fantastic if you do. Um, But some people don't. And that a lot of that relates to the complexity of the product. I've been involved in some B2C products where you it is relatively easy to get a prototype together. In the B2B world, that's very difficult to prototype an enterprise class product uh, just to prove a concept. Though. It's a very, very expensive proposition. I'm glad you said that. That was going to be my next question. Like realistically, because I think this is another place where people get hung up, especially non-technical founders. If you're a technical founder and you have an idea you know, you can go build it yourself, right? You don't necessarily need to rely on someone else to help you get, you know, a prototype or, you know, an MVP or you know, V1 of your your product. Um, but for the non-technical folks out there, um, what realistically, in, you know, if they're self-funding, how, how much money do they need to get, you know, to the point where there's a, enough proof of concept, uh, whether it's a prototype or an MVP, that they can go raise some angel funding or seed funding. 
Um, and how much, so how much should they expect to get, have to come out of pocket? And maybe it's a range and there's a low, medium, high, and it depends on the complexity of what you're trying to build. Uh, but I'm curious, like what, what, what should I be able to uh, pull out of my wallet if I'm going to self-fund to get sure. to that? Very fair question. Um, it is a range. You're right. And a lot of it depends on the complexity of the product and how much of the product management you're also outsourcing. Or are you able to design the UI yourself, that type of thing? But I've typically seen that anywhere from $200,000, $250,000 on the low side up to five, dollars $600,000 um, to be able to get a reasonable prototype out. Uh, to be able to prove and show an investor or something that uh, something the way the product will work and also to show potential customers. Uh, don't forget the um, the prototype, whether it's a, as you say, whether it's a prototype or an MVP, that is, yes, that's absolutely to help you raise money. That's also to help you do your market validation, to be able to show that to customers and say, if you do this, a funny story one of the products that we build here at ethics 360 we developed the product and and uh, we went and showed it to a large japanese company global name that you'd recognize uh in the presentation they said we'll buy it he said well we wish we could sell it to you but this is a prototype it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't work and they said yeah but what your prototype does do is so cool that we'll figure out the, the stuff that you haven't figured out yet is not the hard part. What you figured out in your prototype was the hard part. What's the database on the backside? Give us access to the data. We'll figure out the reporting and analytics. You figured out the cool part. Um, so when you do that, and then you have that validation, and then you have that, you know, globally top five auto manufacturer saying, we want to buy this, and you take that in front of an investor, you have a much stronger story. And in fact, that led to our initial uh, seed funding round five years ago. Right. So for the for the people out there that heard 250 to 500K and, and just got like seriously deflated because they don't have access to that kind of capital personally, um, are there what, what kind of, you know, guerrilla hacks can you do to, to, to get something that, you know, feels like a, a working prototype, you know, that at least can show, you know, potential customers, potential investors, um, you know, the idea in, in, in something a little more tangible um, form, um, you know, what, what are some things that, you know, people that don't have access to that level of capital can do to, to get um, something that resembles a, a, a working prototype? So uh, a, a company that I, I started also many years ago, um, with the developers that we use, we cut the developers in on equity. So oftentimes your 250 to 500K doesn't have to be in cash. Uh, there's a number of folks out there, good high quality organizations that will barter, if you will, uh, for that and be able to let you uh, share warrants, equity and other parts of the company with them. I have had companies where I've had uh, the developers build something um, in not only exchange for equity, but in exchange for if this gets funded, you'll you'll leave and become our CTO you're, or you'll leave and become developers for us uh, that they weren't happy where they were. So um, don't confuse the 250 with cash. Confuse that with value. 
right? And so part of that is also having developers that believe in what you're doing um, so that they put forth their best effort in that. Sometimes if all you do is pay cash, you don't actually get the best product. But if you get somebody who's vested in the outcome of the solution, that's uh, that's really, really good too. So I've seen some very good products that hit the market that, and uh, maybe there was $500,000 worth of value to build the MVP, um, but there wasn't a dime of cash exchanged in that. Right. So what were some of the, as you were you, you're getting um, Ethics 360 built and, 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 and launched, like what, were there any kind of unexpected, you know, challenges that popped up, things that you didn't really foresee, you know, that maybe you hadn't dealt with, uh, with other startups you've been um, associated with, things that, you know, like someone starting a company now, um, you know, might not consider because maybe they weren't problems in the past, but things that you've, you've run into in the last, um, you know, four or five years that uh, might be relevant to someone just starting out. Oh gosh, we need another, we need another podcast to go down that road. <laughs> I actually, the one other piece of guidance that I would give any any entrepreneur, I keep a journal um, and I daily put my notes in my journal. The last page of my journal is literally titled, Shit to Never Do Again. And, <laughs> and that's where I put my mistakes and I intentionally put them there and write them down with a pen in my hand so that they ingrain in me. And when I fill that notebook up and go to my next notebook, the first thing I do is copy that list into the into the next notebook. So now it's like the last three pages of my notebook is a list. So keep track of your don't make make sure that every loss is a learning. And too many entrepreneurs don't do that. Um, they'll do something. They'll realize they made a mistake, but they're not intentionally classifying that as to why that mistake happened and avoiding that mistake in the future. And they make repetitive mistakes. So probably the biggest one uh, for me uh, that has been pretty consistent has always been around not having um, sort of 360 degree vision around the things from outside your business that are going to impact your business. Obvious one from that that everybody can relate to right now is COVID. When people were doing business plans in January and February of 2020, everybody was projecting 100% growth, blah, blah, blah. It's just going to be a banner year. It's going to be the greatest year, et cetera, et cetera. And then March 10th happens, right? And all the plans go out the window. So, and a lot of people lost their businesses as a result of not having sufficient things to fall back on during a, a bad situation. Right. I guess having gray hair helped. I lived through 1989. I lived through 1999. I lived through 2000. I lived through 2008. And so it, it, it forced me to always be protective um, of what I had. So we actually had 40% growth and doubled our headcount during COVID. But in prior years, I've lost my business as a result of outside impact. So part of it is sort of a uh, the, the uh, what the TV show expect the unexpected, you know, things are things are going to hit you. And if you're not ready to take a take a shot, um, that's always the one that that gets you is the one that you did not defend against. Right. How, how do you define success when you're when you're an early stage startup? And it may be pre-revenue, right? I mean, like, so you're you're 
you're, you're, you're getting along and um, you're building whatever you're building. And, and how do you know that you're doing it the right way that you're, you're on the path to success? So I, I think achievable goals are important, right? It's, it's important to have goals and you want to have some moonshots out there that you hope you hit, but you also want to have some roof shots that are not going to be easy, but you know, you can make it, you know, you want to set achievable goals and you want to validate those goals with others. Don't just create your own goals, have board members that you can trust and you can respect that have been there, done that, have advisors who have been there, done that so that you can talk to them about your goals, talk to them about your KPIs to measure how you're achieving against those goals and keep your eye on those balls, right? Don't make your only goal going public and being a billionaire. Um, you know, you've got to have incremental goals in between. Achieving those goals will will fuel you as a leader and as an entrepreneur. Um, and they'll also they'll also remind you that your path, uh, there'll be the lights along your path, if you will, to make sure that you're going where you need to go when you set those those little goals um, all along the way. So I would say that's the biggest single thing is set the goals validate the goals with others. Make sure that everybody sees that, you know, uh, like the old uh, footprint on the floor when you're learning how to dance, right? Make sure that somebody else makes sure your foot, your, those footprints really will make a dance. Interesting. And, and, and how have your priorities shifted um, over time as far as what um, you stay focused on and, and what you have the business focus on? My priorities in this business in particular, it are focusing on the people and the culture of the company, uh, making sure that there have been times where we probably could have hired someone who maybe had better credentials or maybe had more experience, but they didn't feel like the right cultural fit for the business. I a, you're going to have enough challenges and threats coming from outside the walls against the startup. You're trying to build revenue. You're trying to build a reputation. You're trying to build investment. You're trying to do all of these things outside your company. You can't afford to have a, an enemy inside the walls. Uh, right. So managing the culture of your business starts with how you hire people um, and how you treat people as a leader and the level of respect that you give your employees the level of guidance and mentorship that you give your employees, as well as uh, what your expectations are for employees um, inside in the way that they behave and the way that they interact with each other. Um, so I think that earlier in my career, as a, as a younger entrepreneur, if you will, I think that it was all about my great idea and what do I have to do to take the hill and charge and everything else be damned and push out of the way. And I think now with a little little gray hair and uh, some things that some people might call success on my resume, I think now it's more important to me to make sure I put the right people in place uh, that everybody's rowing the boat in the same direction. And I, I don't think I can overstate that enough, the importance of managing the culture and the human capital inside your business. So what are some of the the, the daily, weekly, monthly, uh, you know, whatever uh habits that you've gotten into that that help facilitate that communicate 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 right during the interview process make sure that you're talking about culture 
Uh, make sure that you're asking questions that will reveal if somebody is, is going to be likely to thrive in a collaborative culture and in a supportive culture or somebody who's going to resist it. Um, and once you're there, talk to your people. I talk to my, uh, I talk to, try to talk to everybody on the team as often as I can uh, and have one-on-one -on -one conversations to make sure that I, to make sure that they understand that I sincerely care about them as people. I want to make sure that they're happy at work and that they feel like they're learning, they feel like they're contributing and that they're helping the company grow, but I want to make sure they're okay. And I think that's never been as true as it's been in the last year where people have faced such tragic loss of life with relatives and friends in COVID and the social deprivation that people got from uh, being alone and, and making those, picking up the phone and calling your employees and talking to them, you know, and letting them know, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate your focus. I care about you as a human being. And just believing that is important, but demonstrating that is even more important. And I think that your employees will then, the, uh, the way that they treat you changes and you get a much higher degree of honesty and openness with your employees when you, right. when, you when you really build those relationships. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing, you know, how far a, a simple thank you, I appreciate the work you're doing goes with, with, with people. It's you're right. often it's better, you know, than, you know, giving, giving somebody more money, right? I mean, it's they, people just want to feel appreciated. And they, and you know what, when they know it's sincere, it's so much better still, you know, when you're, don't do it because you think it's really important to walk around and thank people, do it because you're thankful, do it because you're grateful of the contributions people make. They don't have to work here. Everybody that works for Ethics 360 is a highly, highly qualified, talented, intelligent person. Every single one of them could work somewhere else if they wanted to. But every one of them works here, you know, and there's a reason they, they feel appreciated. They feel like they're contributing and I appreciate them. That's 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 great. Is there do you have like a, a go to um, interview question that, you know, you're saving that question up throughout the whole interview because, you know, that how the person answers that question is is going to tell you. You know, is 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 this someone I you know I want to build this business with? Do you have a question like that? Yeah, I actually have a couple. It kind of depends on what I'm interviewing for, but the one that I use a lot that is probably the most telling is when did you know you were an adult? When and did you the, know? I'm sorry, could you say that? When word? did you know that you were an adult? Ah, oh wow, I still don't know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't ever want so to be an you adult. Get a, you will get. <laughs> You get a range of answers there from when I turned 18 to uh, when my father died and I had to take over financial responsibility for the family to when I graduated college to when my first child was born. But you get a perspective. The perspective that I'm looking for there is how do people understand and accept accountability? Because in a startup, you are really counting on everybody to do their job. There's just not enough hours in the day for people to, to not do their job. And when I asked that question, when did you know you were, became an adult? The answer there is really an answer about understanding personal accountability. And that's, that's what I'm teasing out of that, that question when I ask it. So that's one I, I, I will always uh, slide that one in. 
And of course, the one that people, I don't, that a lot of people do, I don't take credit for it, um, is to ask people, so what questions do you have for me? And if at the end of the interview, the person says, I don't really have anything, you covered everything. They weren't prepared for the interview. They yeah. didn't care enough to be respectful of my time to prepare for the interview. So that's a big red flag for me. Oh, man. You, when that's... we pull out their list, when they say, I'm glad you asked, and they open up their book and they've got questions, I'm like, I love this. This wow. is somebody who spent time preparing to interview me, not just me to decide if I want them to work here, but they're actually making an intelligent, informed decision if they want to work here. I want that person on my team. Yeah, you just verbalize something that I've like, you know, I've always felt is if somebody doesn't come with a boatload of questions, they're they're probably not the right fit. They're, you know, they 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 didn't really care enough to prepare. I think you 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 nailed it there. <clears throat> what what do you what what is the funnest part of starting your own business? The the piece you enjoy the most? Oh gosh, I think that um in this one for example, uh, I think it's culture, right? And and we are a definitely wear shorts and flip-flops to work, bring your dog, you know, wear crazy masks on Halloween, have fun, um, have team lunches uh, where you just go grab a bucket of chicken and sit in the conference room and talk and tell jokes and stuff. So I think I think for me, the thing is the camaraderie, uh, the feel of being in the, use whatever metaphor you want, thing of being in the dugout with the rest of the team or being in the trenches with the rest of the soldiers, whatever the me metaphor is, I think that's the that's the one that gives me the most joy. And what's what's the, the thing that gives you the least joy? Realizing that I made a bad heart. Um, and that's going to happen from time to time. Uh, fortunately, I've been around in the business world a long time. So the majority of my key hires are people that I've worked with at other places or in the past. And that's fortunate for me. That And not everybody's in that situation uh, where they have a, a Rolodex of folks because most of them are not old enough to know what a Rolodex is, so they get that cliche. Um, <laughs> but but if, you, if you understand what that means, uh, but still there's going to be some slots you have to fill with people you've never known before. You try to do your best job vetting them, but you still make mistakes. And coming to that realization that you made a bad hire um, is something that you have to learn to deal with quickly and acknowledge. You can't, you can't fix those. You have to move on from people. And that's all, always a tough conversation. Sure. So uh, other than bad hires, is there anything, um, you know, in the, the, the years that you've been building Ethics 360 that you wish you had just done differently? Um, so when I, I was talking to one of our investors a couple months ago, and uh, he said, Jay, I want to compliment you on one thing, on being capital efficient. I, was like, I said, well, my wife calls it cheap. He goes, I like that better. <laughs> so when you look around our office, um, we have a nice office, a respectable office, a comfortable office. But we didn't go out and, and blow every penny we had to have brand new desks and brand new chairs and brand new this and brand new that. Um, so I think when I look back at it, I think that there are probably some areas where I should have spent a little more aggressively. And I think uh, that would probably be the one when I looked at opportunities and I was 
too fiscally conservative. Um, but having been through a number of startups and recession eras, uh, you know, I'm that guy who doesn't uh, doesn't want to run the car to gas. Yeah. For the for those folks out there that you know are 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 looking to start their first business, or maybe they've just started it and they're you know they're they're they're, they're trying to 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 get it launched or get it to scale, um, in, inevitably feelings of doubt, you know, or feelings of you know imposter syndrome creep in, and you know you've been a serial entrepreneur, so uh, maybe you're beyond those uh, feelings, but. You know, if you could think back to when you were first starting with, you know, some of your first startups, how, how did you manage those feelings? And do you still feel them today? I was going to say they never go away, right? Yeah. <laughs> so for me, I still, I still feel that every day. Um, and I think that one of the when I talk to younger entrepreneurs, when I speak to entrepreneur groups or mentor any of the organizations that I serve on their board or as an advisor or whatever. I always ask them, what happens if this fails? If this business completely fails, what happens to you as a human being? Does this devastate you financially? Does this end your marriage? What, what is, what's the bad outcome here if this fails for you? And if the bad outcome is not serious enough, I can tell you they're going to fail. Right? The bad outcome has to be so potentially painful that failure is not an option because if they don't have, if you don't have that level of uh, necessity in succeeding, you'll quit too soon. And I can tell you at Ethics 360, for example, the initial acquisition of the company was me um, at the beginning. Was I was funding it before we received anything else. I knew what losing that meant to my family. Um, and so I understood what my bet was on the table. So there were there was a lot of things that I was willing to do in order to make sure uh, that we succeeded from basically from a level of effort standpoint that I was able I was willing to accept 16 hour days, seven days a week for years on end, because without that kind of commitment, there's times where I would if if there was no nothing to lose on the table. There's times I would have said, man, this is just not worth it. It's too hard. Right. So you, it's it's uh, making sure that your bet makes you obligated to succeed as a, as a small business owner because otherwise you will fail. You can't do this as a part-time thing. And so who, who do you turn to for, to for advice when, when things get a little stressful or, you know, when things get, uh, you know, uncertain and the future is uh, hard, hard to see if, if, if success is around the corner uh, or, you know, pretty far off. Who, who do you turn to for advice at that point? Yeah. So I, I'll, I'm going to answer your question directly, but I'll also give a little bit of a heads up out here to younger entrepreneurs. Your subordinates in the company are not the people that that's the conversation you have. Right. Uh, because they'll start to lose doubt and lose faith, and they'll you 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 can disrupt that. You have to build a network of individuals. In my case, I'm more fortunate because I've been around a while. Being the CEO of a startup is a very very lonely job. Your board is going to have very high, if not unreasonable, expectations on your performance. Your employees have to believe that you can walk through a wall to make something happen. 
and your customers have to have confidence to write you checks. So you cannot expose that you're having any self-doubt to any of those constituencies. So my best guidance is develop a network of other CEOs. I'm in several CEO work groups, for example. Uh, some of them are guys that I know really well and have for a long time. Some of them are not. Um, but we all have one thing in common. We're all CEOs of a startup. We're accountable to employees. We're accountable to boards. And we're accountable to customers. We make ourselves accountable to each other. So we can do inside those share groups. Um, it's sort of a, a sacred bond but inside the wall of the conversations you can have where you're allowed to expose yourself. Um, and you just, I would just warn my uh, younger entrepreneurs that are just thinking about this for the first time, be careful who you expose yourself to um, and, and be smart about that. So what, what's, uh, you know, what's, what's on um, the, the agenda for Ethics 360 over the next 12 to 18 months? What are you guys hoping to accomplish? Yes, yeah, so we're fortunate. We've achieved some really nice financial um, uh, accomplishments. We've had, with the exception of COVID year, we've had pretty much 100% year-over-year growth. We've hit our revenue goals and targets and things like that. We're at a point right now where our revenue targets are getting very, very aggressive. We're at, the, at turning the corner on the proverbial hockey stick. So we have really, really high expectations for 2022. I think we have the pieces in place to do this. We have a great product that's well-received by the market and the analyst community. We have high regard from our clients as far as our level of service. Now we are all about for the next 18 to 24 months sales execution. This is all about growth in both uh, client and uh, annual recurring revenue and client count. Fantastic, man. Well, we wish you the the the, the most luck, and uh, hope to follow up with you in a, a year or two and, and see where you guys are at. Thanks great. so much for, for for being a part of this, Jay. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having us. You have a great day. Yeah, you as well. Thank you all. Thank you.